You're probably wondering at the moment why there's a table set up here that will become clear. Um, I haven't got a whole lot of pictures in my slides. You know, I love using pictures. Um, so we're actually going to, I'm going to get someone to come and, and sit here and help me actually act something out in a couple of minutes this morning to help us wrap our mind around how we respond to the Word of God, what we're going to be reading this morning. Um, and I was going to be picking on Anthea because it's her birthday, but she's quite ill and she's actually not here. Um, so is, is there anyone else in the room that it happens to be their birthday this morning? Oh! Oh, wow. How did that happen? All right. <clears throat> Let's pause for a moment. It's, we're going to pray. We're going to open the word. We're actually going to, going to start with, with some, uh, a little bit of history first to kind of set up our conversation this morning. But our focus this morning is the Lord Jesus Christ, as, as has already been talked about, as has already been prayed this morning. Jesus is our focus. Jesus is our goal. He is our aim. He is, he is the point that we, are, that we are wanting to fix our minds and our hearts on. And as we open up the scriptures this morning, we're going to see the way that the Holy Spirit plays, plays the, the role on behalf of the Trinity, revealing the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, you said that if we prayed to you, you would hear from heaven and that you would answer us. So Lord Jesus, we ask you this morning that you would give us clear minds, that you would help our hearts to be crisp and aware of of things maybe which we are carrying, which get in the way of us seeing you clearly, whether those things are hurt or negative experiences, whether those things are the stresses going on in life right now. Lord Jesus, would you help us to bring all those different things to you and for you to journey us towards yourself? You are our heart's desire. We look forward to the day where we get, where we get to be right there with you. Lord Jesus, right now in this space, would you meet with us you promised that the Holy Spirit would come and reveal you, that the Holy Spirit would come and transform us. So, Lord God, would you please minister in us a work of transformation and a work of revelation? We ask not for our glory, but for your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right. <clears throat> this morning, we are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Welcome to week 28 of Corinthians. Now, um, the last time that I opened up the book of Corinthians, we were talking about women's fashion. We were talking about head coverings and the pallor and the stola um, that women would wear. Oh, okay, that's all right. And we were talking about what that did um, in ancient Greco-Roman society, how it granted pro protection, it granted status, and how it also indicated something of people's intent when they gathered in the church. Um, and then uh, the, the section which came after that um, about communion um, was shared about when I wasn't here. Les, I think, where's Les? Thank you. Awesome. And this morning, <clears throat> we're going to start by talking about... Um, 
the Holy Spirit and talking about a little bit of, of context because it is about to get controversial. If you thought Corinthians was controversial so far, you ain't seen nothing yet. Okay, welcome to one of the grand arguments of Christianity going on in the world today. Um, there is, you know how in church circles, those of you who've been in church circles for a while, know that, that church music is often a, a point where conflict erupts in the life of the church. Because some of us, some of us prefer music which is more, say, emotive and, and, and touches our feelings and our hearts. Some of us love music which is more cognitive and, and theology heavy. And sometimes Christians can end up kind of shooting barbs at each other or sniping each other and going, that, that is not right or that doesn't meet my expectations. And, and we, we can end up having conflict. Church music has got nothing on this. All right, we're going to be talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And there is probably no more contentious uh, an issue that is prone to, to disagreement in the life of the church. So we need to flag first and foremost that we come from, every single one of us comes with a lifetime of experience. Every single one of us comes to this topic with a lifetime of experience, things we have seen, things we have heard, um, positive experiences, negative experiences, things we have been taught whether it's from YouTube, whether it's from different ministers, whether it's from our family that we grew up in. And when we come to looking at this particular piece of scripture, bearing in mind that this morning we're going to open the can and the can will remain open for weeks. Okay, we're not going to resolve something this morning, um, but let the can be opened. All right. As we come to this, we need to understand a little bit about our context when we talk about the gifts of the Spirit, the word that is used in Scripture for gifts is the word charism or charisma or charismata, which is literally the same word used by the Apostle Paul throughout the New Testament that is translated into grace. That when someone talks about a gift of the Spirit in Scripture, it is actually a grace of the Spirit. It is part of the ongoing grace of God. So in Corinthians in particular, as we're going to work through this, every time you read the word gift, I want you to insert in your thinking the word grace because it is the identical word. It is something the Holy Spirit brings as part of God's grace. And that helps us to actually have some of the larger understanding of what's going on here. But before we get to that, I'm going to talk about the two major camps that exist in Christianity um, around the graces or the gifts of the Spirit. One of those camps is called the cessationist camp, and the other camp is called the continuationist camp. And you are already in one of these camps. This may not be the, the vocabulary which you've used around it, but these are the, the two main words that get used. So one of, um, one of these positions, the cessationist position, is a position that says, when we talk about the miraculous gifts that, that we read about in the New Testament, things like speaking in tongues or working of miracles uh, or, prof or prophecy, the cessationist position is one that says these gifts were certainly given to the New Testament church during the time of the apostles or around the time of the apostles, but those gifts have ceased. And there are particular scriptures that people who have that position will refer back to and go, these scriptures seem to indicate that those gifts were temporary and have wrapped up. That's the cessationist position. The continuationist position is one that says, even if I don't experience these things, 
Um, these things have not ceased, they are ongoing. They have continued since the time of the apostles. So I'm going to put my bias completely out there this morning. You know how often I have tried to not let you know what my position is too much, but just to go, oh, look, here are some strong arguments, make your own mind up. This morning I'm not going to do that. All right, I'm going to pin my colours to the mast. Is that I am quite squarely in the continuationist camp. And again, this is the number one area of church conflict, okay? So email me, call me, catch up with me for a cup of coffee. If we're going to do conflict, let's do it as mature Christians. All right. I'm going to go through a couple of slides here to talk about how I have ended up in the continuationist camp. Apart from the church I grew up in and the experiences that I had, I went back and I questioned whether what I had witnessed was genuine or not. And I think all of us, as we mature in our faith, we do that. We go back and we question what we've seen and what we've heard. But let's start with one of my favorite people, a guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon. Anyone else here heard of Charles Spurgeon? Is Charles Spurgeon renowned for being a charismatic Pentecostal? No, absolutely not. Um, So in the 1800s, let me pause again for a sec. I should have said this before. As we look through these eras, my opinion is that what we see is continuationism, is that the gifts have continued from the earliest days of the church through to the present. And my opinion is that if we have grown up in an age or an era or an environment where we have not been aware of this, we can end up with a position that this Pentecostal stuff, as it sometimes gets labeled, is for those weirdos who play tambourines and and aren't salvos, for the people who wave flags, and that it's a relatively recent phenomenon. So let's go back to the 1800s. So D.L. Moody, it's recorded that at one, at least one YMCA meeting which took place, the young men were speaking in tongues and prophesying, and that one of the other ministers who turned up was a guy by the name of Tory. Anyone here got a book by Tory sitting on their shelf? Okay, I do. He wrote Systematic Theology, and he was a witness of some of these things going on. In the 1800s, Uh, We also see Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who made this statement, um, I break forth into a kind of gibberish which I do not myself understand. This is while he was preaching in the pulpit, and he would go to start preaching and gibberish would come out, and then he would have to pause and wait on the Lord, and then he could preach in English. Interesting. Sorry, the text here is really small. Let me read to you. This is an excerpt from Charles Spurgeon's diary. There were many instances of remarkable conversions at the music hall. One especially was so singular that I've often related it as a proof that God sometimes guides his servants to say what they would themselves never have thought of uttering in order that he may bless the hearer for whom the message is personally intended. While preaching in the hall on one occasion, I deliberately pointed to a man in the midst of the crowd and said, there is a man sitting there who is a shoemaker. He keeps his shop open on Sundays. It was open last Sabbath morning. He took nine pence. There was four pence profit out of it. His soul is sold to Satan for four pence. A city missionary, when going his rounds, met with this man. And seeing that he was reading one of my sermons, he asked the question. Do you know Mr. Spurgeon? Yes, replied the man. I have every reason to know him. I've been to hear him. And under his preaching, by God's grace, I've become a new creature in Christ Jesus. Shall I tell you how it happened? 
I went to the music hall and took my seat in the middle of the place. Mr. Spurgeon looked at me as if he knew me, and in his sermon he pointed to me and told the congregation that I was a shoemaker and that I kept my shop open on Sundays, and I did so. I should not have minded that, but he also said that I took ninepence the Sunday before and that there was fourpence profit out of it. I did take ninepence that day, and fourpence was just the profit, but how he should know that I could not tell. Then it struck me that it was God who had spoken to my soul through him, so I shut up my shop the next Sunday. At first I was afraid to go again to hear him, lest he should tell people more about me. But afterwards I went and the Lord met with me and saved my soul. Spurgeon goes on here on the right. I could tell as many as a dozen similar cases in which I pointed at somebody in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of the person or any idea that what I said was right, except that I believed I was moved by the Spirit to say it. And so striking has been my description that the persons have gone away and said to their friends, quoting here from John, come see a man that told me all things that I ever did. Beyond a doubt, he must have been sent of God to my soul or else he could not have described me so exactly. You imagine Charles Spurgeon turning up here one Sunday morning and doing this. What would we think of him? Interesting thought. In the 1700s, John Wesley was alive and in his journal we have recorded more than 200 miracle healings including instances of ecstatic utterance as an enthusiastic joy and weeping i've said before that john wesley was critiqued by the people of his age of being an enthusiast that the people who kicked around with john wesley would sometimes be overcome with the glory and and, and passion of god and they would just weep because of their sinfulness 1540 martin luther spoke in tongues and believed in miracles, the history books tell us. In the 1500s, a guy called Louis Bertrand, who was a missionary um, in South America, um, saw tongues and prophecy and miracles in the 1500s. In the 1300s, a lady called Bridget of Sweden, she founded an order of Christian women. Uh, She was married for 20 years. Her husband died. She founded this order and witnessed the gift of speaking in tongues in the 1300s. The Waldenses, uh, who were a Christian group in France and Italy, believed in visions and prophecy. They observed healings and speaking in tongues in the 1200s. Back into the 1100s and the 1200s, uh, Claire of Montefalco prayed and prophesied miraculously in French, though she was Italian and couldn't speak French. The people, when she's speaking French, can you imagine that? Just start speaking French one day. In the 1100s, Francis of Assisi spoke in tongues and other languages that he had never learned. In, um, back in the 1000s or, or the thousands, Hildegard of, uh, of Bingen, Bingen, who was a scientist and a botanist, which is fascinating for a, a woman in that age, she sang in tongues and then she ended up coming up with a language form to try and write down what was going on for her. She's not the only person who's tried to do that before. Um, some of you are, are familiar with a lady called Fanny Crosby. Same thing, Fanny Crosby. In the 400s, we get back through the Dark Ages into the 400s, a guy called Theodore of Antioch witnessed many miracles, one of the early church fathers. The 300s and 400s, Augustine, who I trust we've heard of, witnessed many miracles, but he actually never saw anyone speaking in tongues. So he writes that he assumes speaking in tongues has ceased because he never witnessed it. In the 300s, a guy by the name of Hilary of Portiers, a Christian bishop, witnessed many miracles and speaking in tongues and interpreting tongues. 200s and 300s, a guy called Pacomius, who was a Christian monk, spoke in tongues and other languages he had never learnt. Back into the 200s, novation. You see, when we get into early church history, people's names are literally one name, or their surname is the city that they're from. 
um, Novation, who was an African church leader who went to Rome to, to step into the position of the Bishop of Rome, even though there was already a bishop in Rome. It was an interesting political era. And he, he believed in prophecy and tongues and healing and discernment of spirits, saying that when those things function, they are all part of church health. Back into the 200s, Tertullian, in a theological debate, actually with, um, with Marcion, who founded the Marcionites, because he is, he's arguing with Marcion about, about theology and doctrine, and he thinks that Marcion is, is a heretic, he says to him clearly, well, show us your visions. Show us the prophecy which has turned up from you. Show us where interpretation of tongues has, has happened in order to settle a matter of doctrinal disagreement in the church. And back in the hundreds, Irenaeus observed the prophetic and tongues and interpretation of tongues. And you are here. We have a context. We have a particular place where we reside in history and in culture. Every single one of us in this room has things that we have seen and things that we've not seen, things that we have felt and things that we have not felt, things which have been a regular part of of our faith journey and things which have been absent. And I think Augustine is, is a fascinating example in here because Augustine sees people getting healed, but because he doesn't see people speaking in tongues, he goes, speaking in tongues is finished. But then we have a look around the same era as this going on. Go to the next one. Hilary of Portiers is witnessing people speaking in tongues and interpreting tongues. It's just happening in a different part of the world. Geography plays a part in this. And we are here. And the journey of Karang Baptist Church has been a journey where this conversation has actually been going on continually. Maybe we've been part of it, maybe we haven't. Maybe the conversations have happened in private rather than openly from the pulpit. But in the life of this church, the same questions have been going on. Is there something of the Spirit of God which happens that is not happening here or that we have not experienced or that we maybe have have not seen function in a healthy way? We're going to have a look at the Scriptures now. Uh, I'm going to pick on probably Brooke in a couple of minutes. Um, And we're going to talk about some implications. Please open your Bible, Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to have a look at the first 11 verses. Um, I've got them up here on the screen in an NIV. Um, Please read along. So Paul writing to the Corinthian church, we know at every single point, Paul has been writing in response to what they've been talking to him about. Paul has been writing into their context And as we look through this, we're actually going to see what was going on in Corinth when it came to the gifts or the graces of the the Spirit. Let's read through these 11 verses, then we'll we'll start with the obvious and we'll go from there. Verse 1. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. Verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore... I want you to know that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, charisma, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, 
but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Verse 7, now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom, to another a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. Let's start with some of the obvious things from this passage. And we're going to start here and work our way back. Obvious thing number one, the Corinthians thought that if a different person had a different gift, they had a different spirit. So if one person is speaking in tongues and someone else is interpreting and someone else has miraculous powers and someone else is doing prophecy, that they had somehow received different spirits. That is the big point that Paul is pushing back against in this passage. He makes other points as we go along, but that is his big point in this passage is to go, you all have the same thing. You all actually have the same thing. You haven't missed out. You have Holy Spirit. The same Spirit of God is in you. And he gives one thing to another, verse 11, just as he determines. He distributes them as he determines. It is not up to you what he gives you. Later on, Paul says, desire the gifts. Paul doesn't have a problem, even though the Corinthians are are, are not using them appropriately. Paul later on says, desire the gifts, but they are distributed by the Spirit. They're not things that you earn. They are not things that show everyone else how holy you are or aren't. They are not things that that people are supposed to wear around like badges of honor. Paul is about to address this because the Corinthians had just gone weird. They had gone weird with them. Paul here is saying you all have the same spirit and it's not up to you what he gives you. It's up to him what he gives you. Let's jump back a little bit. There are different kinds of gifts or charisma. This is where the English usage of the word charisma comes from. The word charisma in its earliest usage in the English language meant that someone was gifted. But remember the word charisma is the word grace, a charism, More ancient forms of Christianity don't call these gifts of the Spirit. They call them charisms, charisms of the Spirit. They are works of grace. So the Holy Spirit is continuing to work the grace of God through people. This is not like something he he leaves on your doorstep and rings the doorbell and runs off. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches, and whoever remains in me will bear much fruit. When we remain in Jesus and his spirit is in us, the spirit flowing through us continues the work of grace in us. That grace is not just a a contractual obligation that God has signed at some point. Grace is present. Grace is continually transforming us. Grace is working out through us. And Paul here is writing to the Corinthian church saying, this is what the grace of God looks like at work in you. These are works of grace. Specifically back here, um, he's, he's contrasting this to people chasing after things 
from when they were pagans. They were led astray to mute idols. It's interesting he doesn't just say idols, he says mute idols. He's saying before you would chase after things that actually would, would, would have, they wouldn't communicate with you. They would not engage with you. You would chase after things and you would go and you would offer a sacrifice to an idol, um, but, but there was never any relationship there. That's the contrast that he's making right at the start here, is he's saying right now, the Spirit of God, when the Spirit of God is at work, the Spirit of God speaks. It's not just that the Spirit of God spoke, but the Spirit of God speaks. It's not just the Spirit of God was present, but the Spirit of God is present. And here, this is his test. Verse 3. All right, we, we prayed at the start of this that Jesus would be our focus. Jesus is the focus for Paul. Jesus is the measure. If someone is saying that they are operating in some way, that the, that the Holy Spirit is at work in them, they will never bring the name of Jesus down. They will never speak against Jesus. They will never contradict Jesus. They will never do the opposite of what Jesus is doing. That's why when we, sometimes when we see someone and they might be a charismatic person or a charismatic leader, they might be someone who's gifted at public speaking, but we see that person doing something which isn't quite right and they're deliberately doing it, this is the test. Is Jesus the one being glorified? Is Jesus the one who is being exalted and honored? If the Holy Spirit is in us, we'll talk about this in a little bit. If the Holy Spirit is in us, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and righteousness. The Holy Spirit is the deposit. Jesus said to his disciples, when the Holy Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit will guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit will cause you to remember what I have said. Literally, the Holy Spirit is going to help you remember what he wrote. He does not contradict himself. This is our measure, not just of other people. It's really easy when we start having a look at this sort of stuff to point our fingers and to go, that person is not using that gift properly. Or I was, I was at a meeting once and a person did this and maybe it, was, it involved speaking in tongues or, or prophecy or one of those things that's just a little bit edgy or out there. And the person misused that. They're out of order. We need to turn that gaze inward as well. And you go, okay, if the Spirit of God is actually in me, if I belong to Jesus, the Spirit of God is in me, and the Spirit of God is continuing the work of grace. If you belong to Jesus, the Spirit of God is in you and is continuing the work of grace. So as that grace is, is burgeoning and, and flowering and opening up inside of you, what are you doing with it? Is God being glorified by the ongoing work of grace in your life. We have uh, an interesting dynamic, let me say in 2019. Um, uh, there's some documents that I've, I know I've circulated to some people who've expressed some interest in this. Um, if we wind the clock back, say before about the year 1930, we actually didn't have Pentecostal denominations. If we wind the clock back 400 years earlier, we didn't have Baptists, we didn't have Presbyterians, we didn't have Methodists, we didn't have Anglicans. We only had the Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. So at particular points in time, different denominations emerged because Christians disagree with each other and they would rather do their own thing, really. 
when we when we see the Holy Spirit, I believe, moving throughout Christian history, it is almost always controversial. It's almost always messy. And it's almost always uh, an era where people go, what on earth do we do with this? What is it for? Why is this happening? One of the things that happened in really the 1700s and the 1800s was a period of time called the Enlightenment. Anyone here heard of the Enlightenment? Good. Uh, And one of the phrases that turns up in our language sometimes is post-Enlightenment rationalism. During the period of the Enlightenment, people so focused on, on the sciences and particularly what's called empirical verification. I can verify something using a ruler and using a watch. I can measure it. I can weigh it. And on that basis, we establish truth. And when people came to the scriptures, they went, oh, Jesus really couldn't have performed those miracles. Jesus didn't really do that. He couldn't have really walked on water. You know what? God really couldn't have spoken the stars into existence. And people brought enlightenment rationalism and post-enlightenment rationalism to their faith. And it really influenced Christianity in Western countries where what we ended up with in many places was Christianity being just as influenced by the, by the philosophy going on around it during the 1700s and 1800s as it was way back in the first and second centuries. So we look back at the New Testament documentation and go, oh, wow, they were surrounded by all this pagan philosophy. It hasn't left, okay? It still exists and is still trying to influence Christianity. But one of the things that happened is that people with their faith started going, we can do without the miraculous, we can, we can go through with a pair of scissors and cut out where Jesus casts a demon into a herd of pigs. You know what? Really what was going on was um, he didn't cast demons out of the demoniac. He counseled the man. Jesus is the great counselor. He, he counseled the man. And what would happen is that the scriptures were demystified. It took the mystery out of Jesus being both God and man. And that influenced Western Christianity when it came to things of the spirit as well. And we need to be aware of it. We need to be aware of our bias. We need to be aware of whether or not we feel like we're missing out and we're going to chase after every weird spiritual thing that goes on. We need to be aware of the way that rationalism is also at work going, you know what, we can do without all this Holy Spirit stuff. It, it cuts both ways. We're going to do our little uh, example in a moment. But it means that when people, particularly during the 1930s through the 1960s and 70s, started having these strange spiritual experiences and people going, I believe that this is of God, what sparked up in American Christianity and in Australian Christianity was almost like a civil war where people went, that is not of God. And if you are going to do that, you're not welcome here. And other people said, you know what, this is of God, and I'm only going to do this. And what we have is people literally leaving the room and forming their own groups. We end up with the birth of Pentecostal denominations for the first time. And most of the early Pentecostal churches that I'm aware of, as I read through the history of this in Australia, were mostly churches of Christians who had been kicked out of other places. In some places, there were sweeping movements of revival where people who were non-Christians got swept in. But if you get swept into a, to a Pentecostal church, say in the 1960s, that's mostly full of disgruntled Christians from everywhere else, disgruntled Christians who are going, you know what, those people over there in that Anglican church, 
or in that Baptist church or in that Presbyterian church, those people over there, they wouldn't know the Holy Spirit if he stepped on them. These are people who have cut themselves off from really good, solid teaching. And we need to understand this dynamic has played out, still playing out in some places today, that we have this us versus them thing happening on both sides of this debate, this question, these passages of Scripture. We have Christians still to this day attacking one another because of their experiences. This is really, really kind of big ticket stuff. So let's, Brooke, I'm going to pick on you now. Can you come up here, please? So we're going to talk for a moment. Can I get you to sit in this seat? And it's your birthday. Not quite. Here, you can have one too. And David. So, Anne, I could see you wanted that one. That's okay. It's good, Tan. Fantastic. All right. Now. Oh, oh. oh. That's okay. Don't get distracted. Bob, don't get distracted. Um, so, when we talk about gifts or when we talk about graces or, or someone giving something else, Often the context that that happens in our culture is a birthday. Okay, So imagine you're at a birthday party at the moment, and the scriptures say that when someone gives their life to the Lord, the angels party. So party hats. Now, maybe this is Brooke's physical birthday. Well, it is today. It's actually the same. Or this is Brooke's. This is the day that she's given her life to the Lord. Okay. And so now this has just got something in it to weigh it down. Okay. It's a bag of rice. Don't, don't get distracted. Okay. Now, pause for a moment, okay? Because we are about to watch Australian culture play out in real time, okay? She's just blown out the candles on her cake, okay? And then the Holy Spirit comes and sits in this seat. And the Holy Spirit puts a gift on the table and says to Brooke, I am here on behalf of of the Lord Jesus Christ and everything I have he has given me everything I have he has given me and I am here to reveal him so that you can worship him and be transformed into his likeness (coughs) so Brooke I have for you part of God's grace to you And I've picked it. And this is going to be something that reveals to you what God is like. And then Holy Spirit slides the gift across the table. Now let's let's play out scenario one here. Scenario one is what's going on in the Corinthian church, where Brooke, I want you to grab that and hold it and go, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. And then imagine Brooke tears off out of the room and completely ignores the giver. Now, some of you have seen this happen, maybe not quite like this, but some of you have seen it where the gift displaces the giver. And some of you have been in churches and some of you have heard teaching where the gift is so emphasized that that the giver is actually not glorified and it becomes about that person. Okay? 
Scenario one. Scenario two. Hat on. Candles blown out. Holy Spirit comes and sits down and puts a gift on the table. And the Holy Spirit says, I am here representing the Lord Jesus Christ. He has sent me. And I have a gift for you. And I have picked it specifically for you. And this is part of God's ongoing grace in your life. And it is going to show you what Jesus and the Father are like. Everything I have has come from the Father and the Son. And this is for you. Scenario two, Brooke slides the gift back across the table. And Brooke says to the Holy Spirit, I've heard about these and I've seen other people with these and and I think that these actually make people look silly. And you know what? I've seen people use these in ways that hurt other people. I've seen people get so wrapped up in these gifts that they become dysfunctional. So how about you just keep that? I don't really need it anyway. And maybe, she says under her breath, maybe, Holy Spirit, I don't really trust you. Scenario two. Scenario three. Candles get blown out on the cake. Holy Spirit comes and sits down and puts a gift on the table, slides it across the table to Brooke and says, Brooke, I am here. Everything that has been given to me has come from the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm here to reveal him. This is part of God's ongoing grace in your life. And you know what? This is going to reveal to you more about the identity of God so that you can glorify him. And it is given for the common good. This is not just for you. This is something through you, which is going to be a blessing to everyone else. And Brooke pauses and she says, "Um, is it the same as what you gave David? Because I really like the one that you gave David. That's a great one. Is it the same as that one? Or is it the same as the one that you gave Anne? Because I really want that one. And the Holy Spirit says, no, 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 I've, I've picked one specifically for you. And it might, I might give you something else at some point, but this is, this is what you need right now. However big or however small, however exciting or however plain, I give these gifts and I, I know you better than you know yourself. Scenario three. Thank you, Brooke. You can go and sit down again. Cheers. The Spirit will never lead you away from Jesus. Paul's whole point here is that the Holy Spirit does things which are diverse. And even though there are diverse giftings, it is the same Spirit at work. It is the same God at work. They are all given for the common good 
and he distributes them as he thinks they need to be distributed. They are all part of the Holy Spirit's work of revealing Jesus. The Holy Spirit will always point people towards Jesus. It is a very real experience that we have seen people misuse things in the name of God. We have seen, some of us perhaps have or have not, seen people where they claim to bring a prophetic word, or like what Charles Spurgeon talked about, a word of knowledge, and it's damaging, and it's harmful, and it wounds people. Some of us may have been in a room where someone starts speaking in tongues, and it weirds everyone else out a bit. Some of us may go, you know what, if I get that gift, I'm going to look silly, because all the people I've seen who have that gift, I think they look silly, and I don't want to look silly. See, the gifts of the Holy Spirit form the real-world revelation of Jesus Christ in the present. And when the gifts function well, whether it's in Corinth or whether it's somewhere else, it means that in that space, the Spirit of God is revealing Christ. Has anyone here ever driven behind an L-plater? I have witnessed, I have even witnessed the driving of P-platers. Amen? Anyone? Yeah, amen. Not once, even though I've witnessed some incredibly dodgy, dangerous, harmful, destructive driving by P-platers, not once have I ever gone, you know what, I want nothing to do with driving ever again. You know, this morning when my wife woke up, I brought her in a cup of tea and I wished her happy Bathurst Day, birthday. <laughs> Freud had a point. Not once have I ever gone, I want nothing to do with driving ever again. But some of us, when we have seen things happen which are outside of our control, things which maybe are a bit odd, which seem strange or weird to us, and when we see people misusing things supposedly in the name of the Holy Spirit, or when we see people and we go, that just looks really manufactured. How could that be authentic? It is a very, very tempting thing for us to go, I want nothing to do with any of that. I'm going to put two, two points here and then I'm going to be quiet this morning. We're going to do two songs after this. Point number one is this. The Corinthians were severely screwing things up and Paul's response to them is right here in verse 1. Paul's response to them is to go, you need to be better informed. They were making a mess of things. They, they were really over-focusing on the gifts. They were displacing the glory of Jesus with the glory of themselves. And when weird Holy Spirit things have happened throughout Christian history, there's a huge amount of stories of, of Christians all over the world in every country, every culture, doing the exact same thing the Corinthians did. They overemphasized the gifts. Paul's response is this, I need you to be better informed. At no point does Paul say, you need to stop. At no point does Paul say, run. Paul says, I do not want you to be uninformed. Point number one. Point number two is this. We're told that the Holy Spirit, Jesus says in John, um, where he's talking to the woman at the well, that the Father wants those who worship in spirit and in truth. He tells his disciples the Holy Spirit 
will guide you into all truth. He says to his disciples, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness. He will bring to remembrance all that I have commanded you. Paul calls the Holy Spirit the, the, the deposit. And we need to be very careful, even if we disagree with this. There, there are many, many, many Christians in the world who disagree with the position I'm presenting this morning, and that's completely okay. Here is what is not okay. Words of Jesus from Luke. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Mark chapter 3, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. We find it again in Matthew's Gospel. And so I tell you, by the way, it's not red because it's angry, it's red because it's the words of Jesus. It just is on a black background. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. This is an important thing, that even if we disagree with the way a particular person is functioning or or the way they're trying to engage with these passages of Scripture, we must be so careful that we do not end up in this territory. And this is the territory where we point at something and say, that is not of God. We need to be very, very careful. Very, very careful here. The Holy Spirit will never detract from the glory of Jesus Christ. But we need to make sure that if we are critiquing something, that we are not saying, oh, that is satanic. Imagine the Holy Spirit sitting in this chair and having this slid back across the table and saying, no, 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 no. These things are rubbish. Okay, this is high stakes stuff. This is dangerous territory. I do not want you to be uninformed. We need to be wise. Um, we need to go on a journey. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to do two songs this morning. Oh, we're out of time already. We're going to do two songs this morning. The first song we're going to do is a song for us to actually sing to Jesus about how amazing and how wonderful he is. And then the second song, you are free to sing or not sing. You are free to sing or not sing if you want to. And it's um, it's him that we're doing this morning, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Because maybe there are some of us in this room that need to approach our relationship with the Spirit again and to go, Actually, is there something which you would do in me to reveal Christ? Is there something you would do in me to reveal Christ? Not so that we displace Christ, but so that we can adore Christ all the more. I'm going to pray, then we're going to do two songs. Lord Jesus, we adore you. We utterly adore you that you would come into our world from heaven, that you would go through everything that you went through so that we again could be united to the Father, that we would have a home in the Father's house. Lord, I am reminded this morning of the words you said that it is better for you to go because if you go, then the comforter will come. And Lord Jesus, I know there's some of us in this room this morning who find that a very confusing idea. Lord God, would you bring understanding to us, please?
Would you help us to read the scriptures? Would you help us to view these ongoing works of grace in their rightful place, not overemphasized? Lord Jesus, I thank you for this church. I thank you for our long and passionate history of pursuing you. I thank you for the mission and ministry that we are doing here, reaching out to this town and to this district. And Lord Jesus, I ask that you would help us to be healthy as a church and that whatever you want to do in us and through us, that you would do in us and through us, that it would be about you. Thank you, Lord Jesus.